0: Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Chris McDaniel, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio is... Jason Rosenbaum. And...
1: Joe Manis, back from vacation.
0: Yes, and I'm... Back from sickness as well. <laughs> Which is why
2: he's not in the second part of the show, Yes, folks. We're, doing we show. <laughs>
0: we're doing a two-part show. we digress. We're doing a two-part show with Senator Ryan Sylvie. What, what did I miss, guys? It was what actually, are we going
1: it, to? Just, is,
2: this is one of the rare times we had a guest just on one topic. And he was great. And um, he, he has gained some attention in the last few weeks for putting on a proposal as an alternative to Medicaid expansion, uh, Medicaid transformation or Medicaid reform, what you will.
1: But it would still, the the aim is to allow Missouri to take to get up to 138 percent. So the Missouri can get that federal money.
2: And he goes kind of in depth not only about the plan, but also kind of the opposition to the plan and how to potentially overcome it. So we'll get that, to that a little bit later, but we're going to just babble for at least 13 or 14 minutes here. Exactly. Yes. exactly. Well, let's, well, let's get to the babbling. <laughs> it, is,
0: it is April 16th, which means that we've had our April quarterly reports. Yes.
2: J- Jason, what did we find? Well um, – we found that people raised money, spent money, and have cash and have, on hand. And have some cash <laughs> on hand. But Joe uh, looked at the numbers more closely than, than I did. So. Yeah.
1: Well, the main thing is the contest, which is not early, regardless of what some may say, for the the 2016 governor's race, where you've got uh, Missouri Attorney General Chris Coster, a Democrat, former Republican, who is continuing to burn, 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 as far as raising money, he's got over two million in the bank, and he uh, raised close to six hundred thousand this last quarter. Now, um, the two Republicans—the one who hasn't announced, who has announced—former uh, state house speaker Catherine Hanaway. Uh, it, it
0: must have been the politically speaking bump <laughs> after appearing on our show, right?
1: Uh, raised uh, roughly around. I mean, I'm generalizing here, people can go to our website and see the particulars. dot yes,
0: stopublicradio.org.
1: Right. Uh, she raised close to $300,000, uh, a little under that, but has about 300000 in the bank. Uh, State Auditor Tom Schweik, a Republican who is expected to possibly run for governor but who hasn't announced because he's running for re-election this fall, raised a little bit less, roughly around the two fifty dollars range, uh, but he has more in the bank, uh, close to 900000 Now, the um, bottom line, though, is that um, you've got a lot of money raising going on, but that so far Hanaway and Schweik have failed to uh, match uh, Coster's um, efforts. Which isn't
2: surprising right. because Hannaway got into the race a few months ago right. and Coster right. has been raising money for this for two or three years now, right now. Now
1: two interesting things is that all three of them have some big contributions but her and um, uh, Schweik in particular. Schweik as we mentioned several months ago got 100000 during the quarter from uh, Sam Fox major businessman based in Clayton right. and um, Hannaway um, in a little interesting twist she received a hundred thousand from Club for Growth, which is a conservative group right. in Missouri. But frankly, it's generally almost totally funded so far by Rex Singfeld who then who
0: has also given
2: Yeah, who
1: to, also gave her 50,000. So yeah. basically she got 150,000 from you, Rex Sinkfeld. Do you
2: think this is a do you think Sinkfeld is going to be donating to two candidates in this race cuz he's donated uh, prodigiously to Coster in the past two cycles or do you think that he's just going to go with Hanaway this time?
1: I don't know. That kind of sent a signal that Coster uh, who has uh, benefited by Sinkfeld's largesse in the past uh, and who occasionally apparently has dinner with him, may want, may want to <laughs> invite Sinkfield to dinner to find out what's going on.
2: Yeah. And, Interesting that, you know, Dooley gets a lot of flack for taking money from Sinkfield. Haven't heard a lot of outcry from Democrats about Coster in recent recent months. Now,
1: Coster's quarterly, most of his donations were less than that. However, the if you add them all together, about a third of his money that he collected during the quarter came from Labor? Yes. And then almost as much, not quite, but at least a hundred grand, um, came from various health care insurance uh players in the in, in the healthcare industry. So that and then he he got his usual amount from fellow lawyers.
0: Yeah. His, but his, this his, wouldn't it, yeah. be the first time that Singfeld has given to both candidates in a race, right?
1: Right.
2: I I'm trying to think of the example though. I, I, I believe he gave to Costa and Martin. Oh uh, yes. Yes he did. That yes. is true. He, he did that the AG's back in, in the 2012. In 2012. And yeah. technically, I think he gave to Kinder and, and Lager, but yeah. that was after yeah. and, he and, had and given And there was, a, there was a large
0: disparity, but he was still giving to both. Yeah.
2: And, and I also should note that Coster, one of his strengths is that he always has had a very varied fundraising base, because not only does he get money from all these traditional Democratic groups, he gets yeah. money from traditional Republican donors. I mentioned Sinkfeld, but he also has gotten money, I believe, from... Has he gotten money from Sam Fox in the past? I believe he has.
1: I think early on he has. I'm not sure if he's gotten any lately, but it's because they share the same uh, uh, stance as far as being in favor of most and he's, forms he's, of stimulus. He's cell also research. gotten
2: money from yeah. William Danforth as well. Yeah. So, I mean, that's just the thing that Republicans are going to have to deal with with Coster. I mean, not only does he have an incredible radio voice that's going to be great for ads, but <laughs> he is is very adept at raising money from. A diverse, diverse, d- diverse
0: pool of wealthy individuals. Which
2: yes. are, are wealthy interests. Um, yeah. are not necessarily wealthy interests, because I wouldn't necessarily say labor unions yeah. are wealthy interests, but of varied interest, right. And that means that he's not necessarily dependent on one donor or one sector. So.
1: And, and one thing I want to make clear that I mentioned before we went, went on the air, and uh, I'm highlighting my age again here. But the fact is that regardless of what some other outlets have indicated – this uh, The fact that the governor's race for 2016 is already heating up, at least on the money-raising side, is not new. And you can go back to numerous previous races, even, in fact, Jay Nixon, right after the uh, 2004 election where Matt Blunt, Republican, had defeated Claire McCaskill, a Democrat, for governor, um, at the... The same day of the swearing in of Matt Blunt, I was over at Nixon's office for his uh, n- renewed uh, party for his swearing in for yet another term as AG. He made clear he was already looking at 2008 for governor. So this is four years out. That's, that's Nixon, the current governor. And then if you go back to, I consider, the marquee gubernatorial race ever in Missouri history, at least over the last 50 years or so, if you go back to the 92 governor's race where you had five major players, two Democrats, three Republicans, the best-known uh, officials in state politics at the time, that race started several years early. And when you take inflation into account, that race between uh, then-Mayor Vince Shamel, uh then-Lieutenant Governor Mel Carnahan on the Democratic side— then Attorney General Bill Webster, who ended up going to prison, uh, Blunt, and uh, then State Treasurer Wendell Bailey, Blunt was in Secretary of State. That contest remains, in my opinion, the most expensive gubernatorial race ever in Missouri history because if you added all of what they spent, it was around $20 million or more. And if you take inflation into account, that still is well ahead of what has been spent in previous gubernatorial races in Missouri.
2: Yeah. So I guess we'll go into our second topic.
1: Yeah, well, well, we need to mention though the other marquee money raising was uh, for St. Louis County Executive, which was Charlie Dooley and uh, Steve Stinger, the two Democrats who are going to be battling it out for Dooley's job this summer. And basically, they were both close on how much they um, had in the bank. Uh, Stinger has an edge, about 150 thousand or so more, and Stinger outraised Dooley, but just by a little bit. Uh, Dooley still points to Stinger's personal money that he put in earlier. Stinger's people, though, can also point to the fact that um, Dooley had a $100,000 contribution just a couple days before the uh, period ended in late March, I, and I, it came
2: from Gene r- Sinkfeld. I don't understand the criticism about the personal money, because that $100,000 that Stinger po- put in is still going to buy the same thing that a donation did i know that they're probably trying to point out that Stanger, you know is a, a, a wealthy means or yeah. whatever but i mean I'm, i don't you I don't could really, also argue that it comes with less strings attached well than, I, right. it, I i don't it. really understand the criticism and if you didn't weren't making that criticism against susan Monty, claire mccaskill or you know anybody or chris Coster, right who, who self-funded i don't really know how you can make it against Stinger, but I mean, it's campaign season. You're going to find any way to criticize. <laughs> well, du- that's the key.
1: What Dooley was trying to contend, I think, is that the fundraising is closer than it may appear. However, the fact that he took a hundred thousand from Gene Singfeld, Rex Singfeld's wife, just a few days before the f- uh, the period ended, that's included in the counting. Um, that kind of negates some of that, you mm-hmm. know, and um, uh, some some of that fight. The, the, the,
0: the, just before we get to our next topic, though, uh, wh- what did Rick Stream's uh, quarterly report look like, Joe? He's also he's the Republican who's who's intending to he run. He
1: hasn't filed yet. Now I haven't looked at it, but the last no. I looked, because he announced he announced after the filing period ended. Gotcha. So he gotcha. doesn't really have to report, frankly, for another three months. And but Rick Stream, though, figures in our next topic. So I'll let yes. you. Yes.
2: Now Jason? we'll now we'll actually get to it. I was <laughs> premature on my transition. So while Joe was gone, the House did a perfection vote or kind of a first round approval vote on right to work, which is a topic that we've talked about ad nauseum Correct. on the show. Correct. Go back to our archives; we can you can hear us opine on on that. And the final vote count that the was only seventy eight votes, and you need eighty two in order to get it out of the House. Correct and what was interesting was not only did a lot of Republicans vote against it, I think about 19, 19 voted, against, voted it. against it. There were also
1: 11 a, who walked.
2: A, 11 who walked or just weren't there for some reason. And it's been interesting to watch this from, from my perspective because I think some people that voted against Right to Work, some Republicans are being kind of treated differently from others. If you're one of the people in the House who is a Republican that represents Jefferson County, I don't think any you're seeing any criticism being lobbed that way because it's kind of expected that they're not going to support right to work.
1: Because there's so many union people or retirees who live in Jefferson County.
2: But then there are the, the, the St. Charles County Republicans and maybe some of the people in districts that are more Republican and less swingy, so to speak. They're mm-hmm. apparently getting pressured up the wazoo to change their vote or to actually vote yes if they didn't end up actually voting in this.
1: Yeah, I interviewed Chuck Katzenberger yesterday, um, I, I, I should say earlier this this week, to, to set the stage here. The House is preparing to have a second vote to come up with the 82, so they need those four extra votes. So there's been a lot of pressure since that vote last week to try to get some people to switch or show up and vote. Yeah, right. And uh, I've been getting, as soon as I got back in the United States, I was getting calls from people. Uh, on both sides saying things, although most of it was off the record. But the bottom line is uh, Chuck Gatzenberger, who's a state rep from uh, Lake St. Louis, who is running for the state Senate, um, did talk to me, and he contended that um, he's been getting a lot of pressure. He had he was among those who, who had voted no. Um, he, as I said, he's also running for the state Senate in St. Charles, and as Jason and others have pointed out, St. Charles also has become uh, home for many uh, labor right. um, activists, uh, members, and retirees.
2: Now, on that, I, I am not really sure voting no on right to work will hurt any of these people. If anything, especially if like you're in Jeffco or a union-heavy district, I think it, you have to do it, or yeah. you're you're a dead man or dead woman walking. In that race, though, I think it could have an impact, because with the confluence of labor support in St. Charles County— I do think it matters. But in that particular instance, it's a three way race, a three way race. And Vicki Schneider, who recently gave her campaign two hundred and forty five thousand dollars, also has labor support. So I'm wondering if Gastonberger and Schneider may end up splitting the labor vote, which may give an advantage to Bob Onder, who I haven't heard him talk a lot about right to work. But maybe we'll run from the right and get those type of Well,
1: Bob Onder, who's working on Bob Onder's campaign? One of Jones' top aides. I mean, the House Speaker Tim Jones' top aides. And House Speaker Tim Jones has made getting right to work through the House a key uh, um, issue. So the assumption is that whether Onder is saying anything or not, that he— likely is sympathetic to the pro-right-to work forces. Now he may not, but I'm just saying that's the perception that's out there. Yeah. And now Gatzenberger said that he has gotten a lot of pressure to either change his vote or at least walk. Yeah. Uh, he's been told, look, we won't take it against you if you just walk next time and just don't vote against right to work. And but he said for the record, that he will vote against right to work again if it comes up on the floor. It so. is.
2: It is kind of. Um, it is kind of notable, though, that St. Charles County has become such a hotbed for union activity that Republicans almost uniformly voted no.
0: Well, you can read up on that at stlpublicradio.org, and you can read Joe's stories about uh, all of the money raising that's been going on, but. We'll now get to the second half of our show with Senator Ryan Silvey. Jason, tell us a little bit about the senator.
2: Well, Senator Ryan Silvey is a former House budget chair. He was one of the youngest people, I think, ever to um, get to that point, which is a very prestigious, powerful post. Um, I, I see him kind of as one of the rising stars in the Republican Party. He's not only somebody who can probably defend his position pretty eloquently, but is is willing to do it pretty aggressively, as you'll kind of see. I should also point out, since we had to cut this because of technical problems, Senator Sylvie is one of the few Missouri legislators who knows and is very good at the video game rock band. As he said on our show, he usually plays the drums because he plays guitar in real life. And as a person who can't play drums in that game to save my life, I do salute the senator for his ambitiousness. We'll be right back. Well, before we get into any questions, just briefly kind of tell us a little bit about yourself and why you got into politics.
3: Sure. I actually got interested in politics um, in high school, in debate class. Um, you know, in debate, you're presented a problem and you've got to come up with a solution and and then convince the judge that your solution is right, or that the other person's solution is wrong. And at the basis level, that's what the legislature is. And I mean, now, we
1: key sure. question for our listeners: Where did you go to high school?
3: Oh well,
2: I'm in Kansas City, so I went to Oak Park High School. Okay, and and what is your district, by the way? I know it's a
3: lot of. I think it's most of Clay County, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? It's yeah, it's most of the population in Clay County. It's it's southwestern Clay County, so it's it's Kansas City North. And then, um, like, Gladstone, Liberty, um, North Kansas City, um, Pleasant Valley, Claycomo, those those areas there.
2: And do you—I've res- always wondered
3: this. Where where exactly do you reside? Do you reside in Kansas City proper, or do you reside in one of those other towns? No, I actually live in, in the city of Kansas City. I live um, about as far north as you can get. Um, I, it's actually closer for me to get to Smithville than downtown, uh, but I'm in the city limits. Now— um- before we kind of get into what
2: our main topic is, you were actually before you were elected a, a an aide to Senator Kit Bond. One of our other guests was as well, uh, Catherine Hanaway. What did yes. he kind of teach you about politics, and how did he kind of, you know, what did he kind of teach you at, in your political career before you actually were in elected office?
3: You know, he he has taught me so much, and it was really just from observing him. Um, you know, one of, one of my favorite stories was. Um, when I when I first worked for him, I used to deal with uh, students when they would come out. And uh, if he was busy, I would meet with them instead. And and during the uh, TWA-American Airlines merger, um, the conference room was full of, of airline execs waiting on the senator. And I had some students out front, and uh, when he came in to go to his, his airline meeting, he stopped and he came over to the table. And he probably spent half an hour with these students, asking them questions, the whole bit. And then he said, well – you know, these guys have been waiting. I probably ought to get into that meeting. So later I asked him about that. I said, what What was that about? I mean, you had all these really important people waiting for you. Of course, I was right out of college. And uh, he said, well, he said, the way I look at it, those people will sit at that table all day and wait to talk to me. And if they don't get to talk to me today, they'll be back tomorrow. But those kids may never get a chance to come back to Washington. And maybe something I said will have a difference in their lives. And it really touched me that it's not always what we think is the most important thing that really is the most important thing. Sometimes it's the little things uh and how you can touch somebody's life. Well that does seem like that's a good That's true. Right? That's true about many things in life. Yeah, he's he's been an, an amazing mentor for me uh to look up to and, and to learn from just by observation.
1: Well that's actually a good segue into our chief topic, which is the Medicaid expansion, since uh Senator Bond former Senator Bond is now one of the key um players in the effort by the Missouri Chamber and some others to persuade the General Assembly to change its mind regarding Medicaid expansion. How big of a role has he had and how influential has he been in your um, taking your position? Because I know you have come up with this alternative bill, which we're going to talk about.
3: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Of course, um, I had been uh, a pretty outspoken opponent of the idea from a cost perspective, having been the House budget chairman and, and now the vice chairman of Senate Propes, um, that I didn't think it was affordable or sustainable for us to do. And so when he first came to meet with me about it, you know, we talked through those issues and, and why I felt that way about it. And, um, you know, we we kind of talked about if there was going to be any way to move forward, you had to solve that problem first. You had to make sure that it wasn't going to cost hundreds of millions of dollars to Missouri taxpayers to to make it work. And, you know, having having him there has been helpful for me because obviously he's somebody that I respect immensely. But I also know that he has a tremendous amount of knowledge uh, about policy and about the process from all of his time in, in service. And, and uh, I trust him. And when I said these are the things that need to be addressed, these are the things that we have to solve, um, he – didn't just say no and try to convince me to to do something else. He said, you're right. Um, how do you think we should go about doing those things? And so the fact that he was more of, of a facilitator of the solution rather than him coming in and saying, well, this is how it should be, and you should just agree with me and then get other people to agree with me, it wasn't that way at all. It was very collaborative.
2: So tell us a little bit about this proposal. And I want to just stress that because filing for bills, I guess, has passed, this is not necessarily a bill, but this is mainly like a proposal that may end up either coming out next year or being attached as an amendment. Kind of explain what this proposal is and kind of how it's different from just straight up Medicaid expansion.
3: Sure. Well, the first thing is uh, the cost factor. You know, I, I I felt very strongly that we had to not put the, the Missouri taxpayers on the hook for this thing. And so um, I kind of looked at how um, there are certain populations that are on Medicaid today that we pay a 40% match for that under the uh, Affordable Care Act would be able to be shifted to a 100% match, which scales down to 90. So there are several populations that you can do that with. and 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 essentially track the savings and and you may have heard that from from the governor's office or from some others but what what I've done is said okay well we're going to take the money we are already spending on these populations and divert them into uh, a fund that that I've called the budget protection fund that fund will then continue to accrue a balance over the next several years when the state has to start paying its match of the uh, when the 100% match goes away <coughs> Excuse me. We will go to that fund to pay the state's portion of the match. So it's money that already would have been spent on Medicaid in the first place. So no new additional dollars. But then beyond that, I wanted a backstop and said, okay, well, what if the projections are wrong? Because I'm not a big fan of legislating on projections, particularly um, when you need hard numbers in the budget. So I said, what if it's wrong in that case? It triggers reductions in payments to the providers. So essentially the hospitals who stand to benefit financially from having uh, less uncompensated care are the ones who would be picking up any of the state's match over and above what was in the fund.
1: Just for our our knowledge of our listeners, basically under the Medicaid expansion as it stands now in any state, uh, the federal government – Uh, has promised to pick up all the costs of the expansion for the first four years, beginning this year, in 2014, and then it scales down to 90%. So the federal government would be covering at least 90% of the costs thereafter. At least that is the plan as stipulated in the Affordable Care Act. I'm just laying that out so our listeners understand. Now, if this doesn't happen this year in Missouri, and let's say – some sort of compromise happens in 2015, the state, unless the federal government changes something, the state would still be out the first year of that three-year all costs covered by the federal government. This is just, I'm just laying out the basics so it kind of explains where you're coming from as far as some of the figures you were putting out.
3: Correct. And and that's why it's so important to have that backstop as well, because as we delay this decision and forego that 100% federal funding um, that means there's less savings that would be accruing into the into the budget protection fund. So
2: one of the things that I notice I know that there's been focus on th- on that and I guess some of the changes to food stamps and and elsewhere but I noticed in the in the outline that you're also including changes to certificate of need and price transparency which have been big issues of Senator Rob Schaaf. So my question is you know, Number, Explain
1: certificate of need. Certificate
2: of need is the process where hospitals get approved, essentially. And it's been kind of uh, – it's been an, an issue for with Senator Schaaf for a while. I guess a couple of questions. Why do you feel that's important to put it in there? And have you talked with Senator Schaaf about this proposal? And if so, what has his reaction been?
3: Well, it's it's been a continuing education process with all of the members. So I, I have met with him. Um, you know, this is something that, that – um, is important to um, what I would say the the free market conservative block. Um, they feel like uh, there shouldn't be any bureaucratic roadblocks in the way of uh, of the healthcare sector, and if the market can support uh, new hospitals or new ambulatory surgery centers or whatever, um, that that it should just be the market that decides those things. And so that was included. Um, both that and the transparency thing um, are things that have been pushed uh, by segments of the Republican Party for as long as i've been down here honestly and uh you know there's uh some feeling that those those policies would introduce overall healthcare savings as far as driving the prices down um of of healthcare and maybe perhaps bringing them under control so um that's that's why they were included um as far as my conversations with uh, senator Schaff, um you know it they they're ongoing and and i'm hopeful that uh that we can continue to make progress.
2: And the, and I focused on him a lot because he's somebody who is virally opposed to Medicaid expansion, but has proposed things himself. So I see like him as a possibility of, you know, if you work with them, maybe down the road, you get something like your bill. But then there are like people like Senator Lamping and Senator Emery, who I'm sure you know, are just opposed to it basically by philosophy. So my question is, you know how do you how do you deal with people who are just going to be opposed to this no matter what even when you like explain all of these safeguards and and facets of the bill that may be comforting to some people
3: well i think you know from a from a procedural process I mean, you you try to address everyone's concerns as best you can. And uh, for those that you're never going to agree with uh, or, the, or that aren't going to agree with any solution of any kind whatsoever, um, you try to to get that number as, as small as possible. Um, <clears throat> if uh, if we're in a situation where, you know, there's five to ten senators that that want to block it, well, then that's pretty near insurmountable. But if there's one or two. Um, Then it becomes a question of, um, you know, where does the caucus want to go and what do we think we're getting out of it? Um, And is it worth uh, sitting around for a few hours while a couple people talk?
1: Now, is there um, any effect of some of the compromise proposals that have been done, let's say, in Arkansas and a couple other states that initially had been resistant, but then they've come around uh, by trying to craft something that would – would satisfy the federal requirements about what has to be done in order to get the federal match, but also at least appear to address some of the uh, conservative concerns about the program in general. Uh, d- has there been much influence from these other states? Uh, is our is some of the opposition, in your view, it's just it's philosophical and it's going to be it's not going to change regardless. I'm just interested in. Your, your assessment.
3: Yeah, it's been really interesting to watch because obviously, in crafting this proposal, we looked at all the other states that have <clears throat> tried to move forward and figured out what we thought worked or what we thought didn't or what would work here. And, you know, certainly um, Indiana, um, Arkansas, Iowa, Pennsylvania, they're all things that we've looked at. And, um, you know, that's one thing that. The, in addition to the budget protection fund, what do you do with these people that makes it different than Medicaid? And, you know, a portion of them would be put into the private insurance market using the federal money as premium assistance. Um, And then the rest of the uh, populations would be on some sort of managed care program, um, similar to what we have in the I-70 corridor right now. Uh, But what's interesting to me is I look around the country and I look at someone like uh, Governor Pence, Um, Yeah, Mike Pence of
1: Indiana, so people know he's a former member of Congress. Go ahead.
3: Yes, extraordinarily conservative uh, gentleman, someone who was vehemently opposed to the ACA while he was in Congress, voted against it multiple times. Uh, But they have found a way to make proposals uh, via the Healthy Indiana program, um, and and it – And he seems to be getting no pushback or at least very little pushback from within his own state. But then I take uh, a conglomeration of several ideas and put forth something that I would argue is even more conservative than the Healthy Indiana proposal. And to some segments um, in the state here, I'm considered now a liberal who's embracing Barack Obama's agenda. Well,
1: is some of this related to just um, a strong uh, opposition to President Barack Obama and his administration? Or is some, or because we have a Democratic governor, Jane Nixon, is that playing into some of this? Do you think?
3: You know, I think the opposition to uh, Obamacare is is a a lot of it. I mean, both political and and philosophical. You know, the states had a couple of different votes on aspects of the ACA, um, and I think that that gets confused and used as a soundbite a lot. Uh, that you know, the states are Oh, the against, Prop C, yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of them was was strictly. Uh, limited to opposing the individual mandate, which I personally oppose and the state voted overwhelmingly to oppose. Uh, but we can't do anything about that. Uh, one of them was the creation of a state exchange uh, through the governor um, using his executive authority outside of the legislature, which I voted to put on the ballot, which I voted for when it was on the ballot. But neither of those votes addressed the idea of how do we actually solve the problems that this federal law is creating for us, uh, particularly uh, when it comes to funding in the healthcare care sector? Um, so it, it's funny to me to, to hear these people parrot this, you know, the states voted against Ob- Obamacare twice. Well, yes, but the states voted specifically against two sections of Obamacare, not on this particular solution or this policy. Um, that i 'm putting forth today, now
1: is there any discussion about the fact that many of the ideas that are in Obamacare initially were advanced by the by conservative groups like the Heritage Foundation and not particularly um, democratic ideas to begin with
3: yeah, i mean that doesn't that doesn 't really seem to come up very much. Um, you know one thing that that I pointed out the other day uh, on the Senate floor was um, what i 'm proposing is not terribly dissimilar to something that Governor Matt Blunt proposed. Ensure um, Missouri. Ensure in, in Missouri, and Ensure and Missouri was in fact uh, passed out of the Missouri Senate, and was carried by um, a version of it was carried by Senator Schaff while he was a member of the House. Yeah,
2: and then and the bugaboo on that with was was certificate of need, which I know you're, we're running a little bit low on time, but it was I was thinking about that when I was looking at your proposal, and I'm wondering whether the hospitals bear some responsibility for the failure of that. Because if they would have accepted changes to certificate of need, that would have passed and been implemented, and maybe we'd be having a completely different conversation right now.
3: Well, we definitely would be having a different conversation, because Insure Missouri, if I remember right, went up to 120% of poverty. So we would have, before the ACA, covered, you know, we're at 18% now. With Insure Missouri, we would have been at 120 percent. So it would have been a completely different dynamic had Insure Missouri passed um, back uh, a few years ago. Yeah, Yeah. I
1: mean because for our listeners, we have to cover 138 percent of poverty level in order to qualify for federal
3: money.
2: Yes. So my final question for you, what do you think the prospects are for this proposal? Do you think it will pass this year or do you think this is a wait till next year sort of thing?
3: You know um – I think that there's a slim possibility. I mean one of the one of the famous sayings around here is nothing's ever dead in the Missouri Senate. Uh so I I think that there's there's a slim possibility that it gets done this year. Um there's still five weeks left for for the dynamic to change. Uh but one thing that, that has happened um through the through me pushing this proposal forward is the discussion has changed in that next year it doesn't seem like such a big deal.
2: Hmm. Why?
3: Um you know, all of a sudden um, where I originally felt like we, there's no way we would ever do this, um, now I, along with most of my colleagues, feel like, well, once people get more comfortable with it and understand the differences between what ACA says and what, what my proposal is and how we treat the populations differently, how we protect the Missouri taxpayers – Once we get everyone comfortable with those things, um, I think there'll be much less resistance to it next year, and it's probably more likely to happen.
1: What are you hearing from the House regarding feedback? Because so far the perception has been that the House is strongly against any proposal having to do with Medicaid expansion. So even if your proposal were to get through the Senate, it might not go anywhere. Uh, What are you hearing?
3: Yeah, I don't. I don't get that same sense. I mean, remember, um, Representative Torpy has uh, worked a number of these ideas into legislation on the House side. Representative Barnes um, has been assisting in that effort. So, I, I think that uh, the interim committees and and all of the the uh, discussion that has taken place on how we should reform the entire Medicaid system um, has has been beneficial both in the House and the Senate. I think. Um, that if they were to get a reform proposal that included many of the reforms they're talking about um, but actually had a way to uh, to get the waivers needed from the federal government, um, I think that they would, they would look hard at it, and I, I think it probably would pass. I, I think what's interesting is if, if you took the proposal I've put forward and you put it on the floor of the Senate today and got a vote today – I wholeheartedly believe it would pass, and I believe it would also pass on the floor of the House. Really? Now, the, the the challenge is getting it to a vote. Yes,
2: absolutely. Because as our listeners know, the, the filibuster in the Senate is very powerful. So if you have five or 10 people filibustering it, even if you have 18 votes, it's tough to overcome.
1: And in the House, the leadership has to agree to have something come up for a floor vote.
2: Absolutely. You, you probably Correct. have to run to the Senate right now. It's 4.03. The Senate has been gaveled into four. So we appreciate your time today. Just to close this out, you can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow Joe Manis at?
1: Jay Manis. It's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And
2: you can follow the senator at?
3: At Ryan Silvey.
2: All right. Thank you very much.
3: All right. Thank you for having me on.
2: And thank you.